This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. I'm Kevin Moore from the University of Georgia and a guest host for this episode. Joining me is Les Steffi an emeritus professor from the University of Georgia and formerly a distinguished research professor for 50 years at UGA. He is one of the foundational scholars with respect to radical constructivism and mathematics education and students' understanding of number concepts. I consider myself extremely fortunate to substitute for Sam. Less's pioneering research into students' mathematical thinking has not only influenced the field in unquantifiable ways, but his work in mentoring has been one of the most significant influences on my thinking and perspective on mathematics education. Les, thank you for being here, and I look forward to our conversation. Glad to be here. Okay. All right, let's go all the way back to the beginning. How did your career in mathematics education begin? Well, uh, I started uh, college at Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa. took a basic algebra course, uh, and I almost flunked it. I got a C in that course, but then I decided to go into, go into mathematics. And so I t- went into uh, trigonometry and uh, analytic geometry. And I didn't really like math until I got in calculus. I really took off, and I just, you know, I said, this is it for me. You know? So calculus was really wonderful. And from then on, on uh, I decided I'm going to be a math teacher. So what was it about calculus that was just so wonderful? Calculus was uh, was wonderful in the sense that it was so quantitative, because I was raised on a farm, and uh, so when I would go home and I could look at oat fields, I could uh, think about you know this full-grown oat field. I look at the surface of it, and I could think about uh, uh, think a triple a triple integral. I could actually get, uh, formulate the volume of that of that surface of it, the solid that constitute that oat field constituted. So I, I looked at the tractor tires, and I realized that I could use a, I can rotate a circular re, a region around that around that axle and, and formulate the volume of the tractor tire. And so it was those kind of things, where I could actually take and use my mathematics in those in those contexts, that was very natural to me. So I reconstituted and reconstructed my my reality tremendously. That's what that's what allowed me to do. Yeah, so you would say the the mathematics or the calculus gave you a way to sort of restructure your experiences and think about them. Absolutely, uh. absolutely. It was really, a, really. A, uh, so this is mathematics, and I was taking physics at the same time, and so you know, so mathematics, of course, mathematics and physics go together like, like you know, hand in gloves. So I I, I studied uh, physics, uh, went into uh, quantum mechanics and, and mathematical physics. And it was just all very wonderful. So I thought, you know, thought about being a math teacher, but I had a brother who's a damn genius uh, in, in physics. And, but not only is he a genius in physics, but, but he could take things apart and build radios and that kind of stuff. And so I said, hey, I can never, I can never carry this guy. You know what? So, <laughs> so I don't think I want to be a physics teacher. But I, I could have been a good theoretical physicist. <laughs> So I decided that I'd, I'd just be a math teacher because I thought that would be much more appropriate for me than a physics teacher. But I still really love physics. So. Well, I'm glad you went the mathematics route. Yeah, I did go the mathematics route. Okay, so you went and taught for a little bit. 
Yeah, I taught for three years, actually, in high school. Yeah. And, and then why to graduate school? What, well, what drew you back to the classroom? That was, that was an era of modern mathematics. And so what they were doing, uh, they were, the government was, uh, was giving, uh, supporting math teachers to go back to school and learn how to teach modern mathematics. And so I got a sequential summer institute at Kansas State Teachers College. Uh, I was a teacher, so the three years that I taught, every summer I'd go to summer school at Kansas State Teachers College in, in Emporia, Kansas. And I earned a master's degree in mathematics that way. Uh, this, and so then I learned a lot of mathematics. What really basically it was is a graduate course in mathematics. <laughs> master's degree course in mathematics, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't teach me much about the psychology of mathematics education, problem solving, and, uh, and discovery learning and that stuff. That was not, not, that was not the topic of the, of the, uh, of the sequential summer institute. So I decided that you know I was only making forty five hundred dollars as a mathematics teacher, and you know the upward mobility that going to graduate school offered was really very attractive. So I decided to uh, apply for doctoral studies, mm -hmm. and uh, I applied for Ohio State University, and I said if I get Ohio State University, I'm going to Ohio State. But then I got was well, University of Wisconsin, and they 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 accepted me on an academic year institute, mm -hmm. and so I went to Wisconsin. What a shame that you couldn't become a Buckeye, though. <laughs> and now you, and I thought you'd like that, though. <laughs> now, you can, now you can give me a hard time. Uh, all right, so we fast forward a little bit to your time in Madison. Could you tell us a little bit about your dissertation study? You know, What was the focus of the dissertation research? With whom did you work, and how did you get into that focus? Well, at the time, 1965 was when the uh, first research and development centers uh, were established. And uh, I was uh, a research associate in the research and development center. And Henry Van Ingen was the co-director, along with Herb Klausmeier, of the, uh, who's, who's in education psychology. They were co-directors, both Dutchmen. And you can imagine how that worked. Hmm. <laughs> but they, uh, they were co-directors. And uh, Van Ingen was, uh, at that point, developing what he called patterns and arithmetic, which was an elementary school mathematics program based upon tele, a telecast. And so he would, he would telecast the, to the teachers in the state of, in the state of Wisconsin. He would, he would do these telecasts every week. And so I, would, I became involved in actually uh, working with the television teacher. That was my job, to work with the television teacher. That was one of the re reasons I, like, I got involved in curriculum research. Plus, I was a mathematics teacher. And the other thing was, you know, that was when Piaget was being rediscovered in the United States. Mm -hmm. And Van Engen was one of the people who, re who was doing the rediscovering of, of, of Piaget. So he got me reading Piaget's work and how stories set there. And uh, so I became very interested in children's construction of numbers a la Piaget. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that, that led me to conservation, which was a big thing then. That was a big topic then. The big topic in uh, mathematics education and people were saying, well, we can just we can train conservation mm. of number. And so what I did is I wanted to find out if conservation of number had anything to do with children's uh, thinking and solving of math problems. And so I did a repeated measures design, Newman Cool's design. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but then that's, that was science mathematics education in those days. You, know, you did statistical uh, experimental, experimental studies. And that's what that's what you did. And that, that was that was the idea of, of research. And, but that's how I that's how I became uh, interested in PIJ through that through that activity that I was involved in in mm -hmm. the R and D center. Mm -hmm. 
So can you say a little bit more about your dissertation research, sort of? Did you choose your topic, or was that just embedded in the project that was there? Well, no, I, I, I chose my topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, uh, like, but of course, I was reading uh, the problems and problem types and all that stuff goes back to Glenda Dean Gibbs' work and Van Engen's work when they were at uh, Iowa State Teachers College. And Von Van Engen was chairman of the math department. There. Uh, he went to uh, University of Wisconsin, and Gibbs went to University of Texas. Out of, out of that department, it was a, a very, it was a two very powerful people. But they, but Gibb and Van Lingen talked about problem types, word problems, and that was involved in the curriculum stuff that I was doing. But the study that I set up was my own. You know, I developed my own study, and uh, I'd be reading Piaget of conservation and number, and I'd be, I was wondering what you know, kids who couldn't conserve numbers surely, surely couldn't solve these problems and, and conceptualize the problems. So I was very interested in that sort of that sort mm -hmm. of thing. All right. So a key project in your early career was the interdisciplinary research on number, or the Iron Project, right? Yeah. Um, what led you to start that project, and what sort of role did that project play in setting the future directions for your research? Well, <laughs> that's a very interesting question, because uh, the modern in the modern mathematics movement at, at that time, uh, what they were what they were claiming is that Piaget's work really does not does not uh, have have anything to do with the readiness to learn mathematics. Okay, it was Bruner's famous readiness hypothesis. Any subject can be taught in any intellectually honest form to any child of any stage of development, which was Piaget's stage of development. Well, that was kind of a broad statement, but I didn't believe that. He based that readiness statement on it, uh, Marbell inhaled it at the Cambridge conference uh, that was held. And if you go back and read that Cambridge conference report, it's, it's a very, very interesting report because in the inhaler commented like something to the effect that, well, if uh, if you use materials, the suitable materials, you know, these these children can can learn a bunch of mathematics because then structuralism in modern mathematics is very prominent. And Piaget's work was structuralism. They interpreted Piaget's work as a structural structuralism. So that really went together for the elementary program. So they used Piaget's uh, work as a psychological rationale for the for the elementary school program. That was one rationale. However, not not, not everybody agreed with that, and a lot of people were saying, you know, we uh, and Jeremy Kirkpatrick was one of them. I can go back to nineteen sixty four report in which he in which he, uh, that paper that he gave at the Cornell conference. Which basically, which basically uh, claimed that the modern mathematics program developers had been showing that children are capable of a lot more than than we think. So the elasticity of children's thinking hasn't hasn't been determined. Now I didn't necessarily disagree with that. For this, for children who uh, were in the PIJ's concrete operational stage, but I spent the first eight years of my life at, at the University of Georgia trying to, if I say, disprove that readiness hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to apply Piaget's research in mathematics education. That led to my first eight years mm -hmm. of research, in it. and I, but I was doing I was doing experimental research, mm -hmm. Stanley and Campbell kind of research, Newman Cool's kind of you know, statistical kind of studies. That became uh, extremely accretional for me, and uh, I was getting very frustrated with it because because what I was I really wasn't learning the children. I was doing experimental. I was doing experimental studies, and I, there was there was some there was some teaching involved. There was interaction with the kids, 
but I didn't feel like I understood these kids. Mm-hmm. I had no, I just didn't understand these children who were, who were pre-operational. I don't know, I don't know what their mathematics was like. I don't know what their thinking was like. Mm-hmm. I can disprove, and I disproved over and over that readiness hypothesis of Bruner. Mm-hmm. I disproved it several times in, in several contexts, but I still didn't understand the kids. So, hence the future research that you engaged <laughs> in. So, that was part of my future research agenda. So, mm-hmm. I realized at that time. So, what I did, because what I did is I returned to the teaching myself as a teacher. So, myself as a teacher was in conflict with myself as an experimental researcher. So, I went out, I, ta- I taught with a couple of graduate students. Jim Hurstein was one of them, and Curtis Pike was the other one. Taught two classes of first graders. I wanted them to teach me what they knew, and and that was that was. I realized that I had to I had to develop. I can't just apply Piaget psychology that was developed for a different reason. I can't do that. That was a mistake. I had to I had to develop my own psychology mm-hmm. of the child, and that was a fundamental understanding, and it changed my whole concept of what it what it meant to do research in mathematics education. My whole concept of who I was and what kind of a research and what my goals were changed. Trying to apply PIJ psychology to prove Bruno wrong, mm-hmm. to actually doing teaching experiments. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to start using my, my self as a teacher. That's a very, very basic in my identity as a mathematics educator. I'm a teacher. I'm a mathematics teacher. And so before mathematics teaching and the research was totally separated. Somehow they have to they have to be integrated when I use teaching as a method of scientific investigation, to, and to think about teaching as a method of scientific investigation, I still don't think that's very well accepted mm-hmm. in mathematics education. Mm-hmm. The the teaching is more or less thought about as something that you do as an art. So that the concept of scientific teaching is not there, mm-hmm. and, and especially using teaching as a method of scientific investigation, it's not a treatment. <laughs> You're not thinking about treatment as a whole different concept of, of, a, of a teaching in the teaching experiment. Mm-hmm. Then this is not a treatment. Mm-hmm. Right? As, as you think about, you know, agriculture research, and you, <laughs> you put this treatment on this set of corn, this field of corn, you put another treatment on another uh, field of corn, and then you try to compare the results of those two treatments. That's not that. Mm-hmm. It's not standard in that sense. Well, I know one of the things that's always stuck with me in terms of advice you've given me has been along those lines and not looking at anything as application-based. You're not applying Piaget's constructs. You're not applying things to your teaching, but rather to think of them as a scientific and personal development um, sort of pursuit. Yes. Yeah, and so relatedly, um, I think this probably lines up in the career. You know, you were very fortunate to get to meet and work with von Glossersfeld. And anyone who's read an article book on radical constructivism probably has you and von Glossersfeld to thank, particularly in the area of mathematics education. And I know I'm jealous of the years you were able to spend um, as his colleague and work with him for sure. I know we've had so many conversations about him and getting to hear your experiences with him is just fascinating. So maybe if you would talk about, you know, how did you develop that early relationship with von Glossersfeld and radical constructivism and what has that you know helped you do in terms of your career? Well, I did not know von Glossersfeld, but he came to, uh, von Glossersfeld came to the United States to work in, uh, work in US, uh, off US Air Force project where, he, where they were doing Russian translations. What they wanted to do is they wanted to do computer translations of the Russian language. Apparently that fell through and so he started working in Atlanta and what you call with chimpanzees because he was a linguist in the language, and, and so by working with the chimpanzees, 
the question was, do, do the chimpanzees have a language? I don't know exactly how he became associated with the University of Georgia and, and Charles Mark, but I think it was through that project somehow. But Charles Mark was a Piagetian and had visited Piaget uh, in, in Geneva, and I worked with Charles. I mean, he, we were working together in, in the Research and Development Center for Cognitive Educational Stimulation here, and Charles Mark was one of the principal people in there. And so, you know, he knew that I knew something about PNJ. So he started working on uh, the communities of my students. He was an uh, Air Force pilot in the Second World War, but he had a heart problem. So that was, that was uh, he, he died very young of a heart attack. But somehow Vine Glossershaw became associated with the University of Georgia, and I, that I don't know how it happened. But Ch Charles, he started working with Charles Mark. So Charles is working with him, and he's working with me. So he introduced us. And I went to one of the seminars that Mike Glossesfeld offered. Charles invited me to that seminar, and, and Mike Glossesfeld was talking about this, the frog and catching a, a pellet, and thinking it's a fly. Mm -hmm. um, he, was, he went through that experiment, and so, you know, so from then I was really hooked. Hmm. But that, that, that analogy uh, and that story with, about, that, about the frog and, you know, the frog catching, uh, thinking that the, the pellet was a fly and assimilating it as a fly uh, really, really resonated. So I, I was always a constructivist, but I didn't know I was a constructivist. I didn't know, I didn't have that word. And so we started working again and we, and we developed, uh, he knew I was working on a number. And there's another person, a third person was John Richards in the philosophy department. John was interested in reconstituting the philosophy of mathematics from a, a, an epistemological standpoint from the point of view of children building up knowledge and looking at mathematical knowledge and looking at how the evolution of mathematical knowledge from the childhood through adolescence through, through adult and justifying mathematics from that point of view. So, so, so the philosophers are always interested in the justification of knowledge. So he was interested in, just, in the justification of mathematics through, the, through its construction. By, by children, and, uh, and that's how he, that's how he oriented, and so that fit very nicely with my glasses fell, and fit very nicely with what I was doing. So the three of us developed iron, working on iron, uh, all having different agendas, but yet coming together with respect to the problem site. Hmm. And the problem site was the teaching experiments that I did with the children, and analyzing the videotapes of the, te of the teaching experiments. I think that really echoes something you've said to me several times about mathematics education being truly interdisciplinary, just in its nature. Uh, you've made that comment uh, several times. I think <clears throat> that I think it is interdisciplinary, mm -hmm. but it's interdisciplinary in a, in a way that people don't think about interdisciplinary research. I don't know how people think about interdisciplinary research, but it seems like they say, okay, they got this discipline, this discipline, that discipline. You're going to do interdisciplinary research. All you have to have is three people from a search from this associated disciplines together, and that's just not the way I see it. You have to have people who are really, really integrally involved, working together and have common orientations so that they have their own projects, they have their own reasons for being, but you're working on a context and a problem site so they can, they can manifest them, themselves in that problem site. That's, it. that's true interdisciplinary research, so you learn from one another. You have to learn the language of, I had to learn the language of philosophy. I had to learn the language of, of epistemology from from Bonji. He was developing radical constructivism at that point in time, but he's also involved in the, in the research that, that I was doing, doing 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 a conceptual analysis. So I was doing conceptual analysis. So he they were learning from me, 
what I had to offer for them for the children and, and analysis of the children, and we would fight like mad about what was what, what all that meant. And I wouldn't I would not you know, I wouldn't take a sit back seat to them. There was a philosopher and a, and a that a, a guy who knew four languages, and here I was, was as a math educator, <laughs> from Iowa, trying to teach these from Iowa, trying to teach these characters. Uh, but you know, they, they but they backed up. They, they they really they really learned to respect these children and the, the development of what I was trying to do. And in fact, it became so so dramatic that John started working with Karen Fusion on on, on her project and taught Karen all I knew. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But that's an aside. <laughs> but that, but that was that experience. I think of, of interdisciplinary was was pretty unique, and I, I I see people now trying to encourage psychologists and and math educators to write companion papers and that sort of thing. I think it's an, an interesting experiment. But unless you unless you really work on problems, I don't think it's going to amount to much. Mm-hmm. I was speaking with Les Steffi about his career in mathematics education. Among his many accolades, Les is a recipient of the Senior Scholar Award from the AERA Special Interest Group on Research in Mathematics Education. And his research has produced models of student thinking of number, fractions, and multiplicative reasoning. Les, your work has spanned a lot of ideas over a long period of time. What contribution are you most proud of? (laughs) (laughs) Putting you on the spot. And you can't say all of that. That doesn't. That doesn't that, I won't let that fly. Well, as I think back on it, probably, probably the thing I'm most proud of is that we were being we were we were being creative. We, you know, we developed a lot of creative ideas that that wasn't that weren't there before we went through this work. But I'm always using the plural we, but not just with Von Glassesfeld and, and Richards. They didn't need me, but my students did. And I, I think by taking people like Pat Thompson and uh, Ronzer and Bob Wright uh, and people like that out into the field in constructing children's mathematics, teaching them how to do conceptual analysis, and them teaching me, you might say, in many cases, the intricacies of conceptual analysis, and working with children like that, uh, and I think the probably what I'm most proud of is the is the uh, and I say the development of these really powerful researchers in math education through that process, which socializes the, the, the work that we were doing in a way that would not have been possible otherwise. So working with them, working with these doctoral students in that way is really, really critical for the field. It, this research is critical for this research program. I'll say the field, but I'll, I'll revise that to say it's critical for the research program that you have lots of you know, various investigators operating in the research program that will extend it, who understand deeply what you're doing and, 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 what, and what's involved. Because after all, you know, no research is going to live forever. You know, mm-hmm. You've got to have people coming up and uh, building on it and extending it and uh, willing to do the hard, really the hard work that's involved. So I guess I'll take advantage of this topic and go off script a little bit, particularly in terms of this is a question I always have. You know, for those of us working with doctoral students um, out there, what is your best advice supporting the development of your doc students so they become, you know, what you're trying to help them grow into? Um, a lot of empathy. You got to have them. You got to work with them in such a way that they're co-researchers, not doc, not doctoral students. They have to be genuine researchers with you, 
while they will defer to you, you always have to give them lots of freedom, encourage freedom, encourage creative thinking. And so, sometimes, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it comes back, I can hit you in the head, but that's okay, you know, that's okay. I'm, I remember Pat Thompson flouncing out of my office one time, just mad, I don't know what went in. And <laughs> he came back. I don't know if he's going to come back, but he did come back. But, but uh, that's just, that sort of thing is really a very important. Okay. Well, they were doubting. He was doubting me, see. And I've had other people doubt me. Other doctors didn't doubt me like that. But that's good. And that, that means that, that, that means they're growing up. You, that growing up process is really critically important. they got to grow up. they got to grow up as researchers in math education. And... Uh, to do that, you got to help them grow up, but you can't dominate them. you got to treat them as co-colleagues in that research process. It's not social colleagues, it's conceptual colleagues. Mm-hmm. The social colleagues, for me, you only develop later. And it's, I always have to wait until doctor students. My, if my students are out of school two or three years, then we become great friends. Before that, we weren't really friends, we were, we were colleagues. Which is, which is a distinction I think is important. Mm-hmm. You've been able to watch numerous shifts and developments in mathematics education over the years, several of which you will discuss in your upcoming PMEA plenary and proceeding that you've been working on tirelessly for the past several months. <laughs> what do you consider the most pressing issue or need in mathematics education moving forward? We've got to reconstitute the curriculum that children are involved in. I just think that's the most pressing need. That has a lot of associated problems. I think we all understand that. But the mathematics, that's, since 1900, I started this paper and I reviewed things up to, to the 2017. Everything has always been done. The mathematics of the curriculum has always been first order knowledge of the curriculum developers. Mathematics is taken as a given that's out there. It's real. And everything is, we, we, have, we understand what mathematics is, apparently we do, but that's always kicking us with, with the curriculum content, what children are to learn. It's mathematics that's known by adult people. And the, so this is what children have to learn. And until we change that whole concept of what constitutes mathematics, and understand that the work that I've done and the work of my students and what we're doing in mathematics education, we're doing mathematical kinds of research. Children's mathematics is mathematics because you look for a rational system that will explain that mathematics. That's the second order model I'm talking about, the rational systems. And if you can formulate rational systems that are mathematical-like, then, these, then this, that constitutes legitimate mathematics. It's internally consistent. It's not self-contradictory. Now, people say, well, kids make errors all the time. Well, that's because you don't understand where they're at and you don't understand the internal workings of those kids well enough that you can that you can you know, might say tamper tamper a little area out where, where you know you know kind of it's kind of like a sphere you know what the surface what the surface of the sphere is it's not it's not a surface but it's a if <laughs> you say two surfaces with, with some with stuff in between it so that 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 place where the kids start meeting perturbations that they can't that they can't eliminate. Okay, and but inside that sphere is what, that's where they're operating very comfortably and operating. And until we understand, until we understand those those ways of thinking that the children have, and ways of thinking that we can, you might say, that would that would destroy those ways of thinking, and come to and reorganize it into more elaborate ways of thinking. 
See, I, I think about what's an intelligent system. Well, an intelligent system is a system that has the power to, to destroy itself and, re, and reconstitute itself in, in, a, in, a, in a new way and new ways of thinking. That, that's what I mean by an intelligent system. The, its ability to adapt in, internally. So the adaptation for me doesn't mean I'm adapting to more to what's out there, but adaptation means I am adapting in, in the sense that I become more successful in my environment. I can eliminate the constraints in my environment by ways operating, uh, formulating new ways of operating. And until we understand mathematics that way, students' mathematics, and that way, then I think curriculum doesn't make sense to me. That's the most pressing problem in mathematics education, as far as I'm concerned. So we constitute what constitutes school mathematics. So I know curriculum is always a buzzword that is used in any sort of educational system. So. To you, if you had to answer the question, what is curriculum, what would your answer be? It's the intentions of the, the curriculum has to be the intentions of the people, of the adults that you have for children when they're, when they're growing up in mathematics. So it's, it's those intentions and, and the goals, of the, the, goals of, the, of the curriculum writers that have to be constituted as curriculum. That's one of the curriculum. It's how you formulate that. That I'm, what I'm talking about. I don't want to change Pat's notion of epistemic analysis. Uh, but still, this analysis, of, this analysis of the concept and operation of it, all ways of thinking, that is, that's an integral part and a very important part of curriculum. But it has to be changed in the sense that we understand the way the systems that we say that our, our epistemic students, that we understand those in such a way that we see how they grow and develop. And it's not necessarily towards that endpoint that we have analyzed. It's not that at all. We don't necessarily have to have the endpoint of the epidemic of all those ways, wonderful concepts and operations. These students may go, go off in, in a different way and not go the way we would like for them. But we, we need to be flexible in the sense that we may be developing geometrical thinkers in some cases, and then everybody doesn't have to learn fractions. Okay, so we have to be much more variable in how we, how we think about curriculum. So it's not grade level, it's not content level. It's student-centered in such a way that we evolve the students in ways that seem natural for them. Final question, um, and in the spirit of Sam's traditional podcast, if you had not worked in mathematics education as a career, what can you imagine yourself having done instead? Oh. <laughs> well, I did like physics. <laughs> In school, uh, I did. I did often, often think about what what it would have been like to be a mechanical engineer. But then, on the other hand, uh, physics, and mechanical engineering would have appealed to me. But then, I always liked to read about European history as well. But really, what, what really what really basically interests me is farming. I could have been a really good farmer because I grew up. That's my that's my childhood experience. I have uh, brothers who are farmers, very successful farmers, so I could have been a, a successful farmer. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad and I thank you for becoming a mathematics, educator, <laughs> a mathematics educator. So on that note, Les, thank you for agreeing to do this and taking the time to share your perspectives. And on behalf of the entire field, thank you for all the work you've done and everybody you've influenced. And I look forward to PME&A and hearing you speak there. Thank you. Definitely.